Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Today we will reflect into chapter 11, uh, those first few verses in chapter 11. And as we do so, it will afford us the opportunity to engage some theology of the body, certainly some subject matter that we have had a lot of fun with in the past. Now, before we get into that, I did want to speak to a few other things, to the least of which uh, is yesterday. Yesterday was 911, and there was a lot of memorializing of uh, those events. And one of the things that really stood out for me was while a lot of people were talking about the tragedy, I also heard a lot of unity. Remember what I talked about yesterday evening? That man who said he got to know his neighbors better more over the last 24 hours than he did in the last 20 years. But what's going on there? Where there is tragedy, there is unity. Where there is conflict, there is a coming together. And that's what I was hearing a lot yesterday with all of these stories. These stories that surrounded the great tragic event of 911 and also Benghazi. There was certainly some discussions about Benghazi. There was a lot of reflection into how people came together and how important is that. As I was heading back here this evening, I was really thinking critically about the cross. You know, here you have the most atrocious event in human history, and yet that event, which is the most tragic event in human history, becomes the great point of unity becomes the great point of reconciliation, becomes the great point for all of Christianity to come together. You see, my friends, what Jesus conquers in the cross is sin and death. And as he does so, he reconciles. And my dear friends, we are made to reflect into this very thing as tragedy surrounds us. Now, the context to which I spoke to yesterday was what? Hurricane Harvey. We also spoke to Hurricane Irma, these great natural disasters. And the point was how people came together. So where there is tragedy, hopefully there is a coming together. This is what we pray for. Now, by nature, people will go to those who are in need, right? But some people will step away. What we need to be able to do is recognize that God does use these tragic events to bring about a deeper unity, just as he used the one great tragic event of the cross to bring about, of course, the unity of Christians. What do we say? Oh, happy fault. Like, <laughs> that phrase for such a long time was so perplexing to me, oh, happy fault. Yet, when you think about it critically, what do you come to discover? <laughs> but, oh, happy fault because it is in the cross that we not only discover our salvation, but also a means by which we can better understand how God uses tragedy in our everyday life. 
oh, happy fault. So as we reflect into these tragic events like Benghazi and, and 911 and Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, let us rise above and look at how God might use this to bring about a greater unity. And as I speak to this, what does that mean? Well, we have to throw ourselves into this great theodrama, right? If all we are caught up is in this uh, ego drama, this drama that is about the play we write, the play we produce, the play we direct, and above all else, the play that we star in, we will never come to understand the principle of unity for what it is, because we will have never thrown ourselves into the great drama of other. That is the theodrama. The theodrama is the drama that loves. How do we define love? To will the good of the other. There are many people right now who are in need, and the question that is before us is simply, are we willing their good? Are we going out of our way to will the good of the other? So that is what's before us. If we are not seeing the unity, then maybe we have to step outside of ourselves, if you will, and look at the bigger picture, which as we speak to it now, is the theodrama. And then you will come to understand, I believe in my heart of hearts, why we can say tragedy can be a means to unity. Huh? Okay. Yesterday evening, we were talking about this propensity we have to compare and to measure ourselves against one another. (laughs) As Paul recognized, this practice is futile, and as we noted yesterday, even harmful. You know, more times than not, when people compare themselves with others, even if only in their own minds, what do they do? They tend to sell themselves short, huh? Thinking that others have more going for them. What does this lead to? This is the kind of thinking that leads to envy. This is the kind of thinking that leads to self-pity. It can also lead, paradoxically, to the negative self-commendation that Paul was referring to yesterday as we spoke to it from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the need to assert oneself over against others. You know, we say to ourselves, at least I am better than him. All of this, my friends, is only an attempt to, in many ways, uh, compensate for self-doubt and to compensate for self-esteem, huh? The Apostle St. Paul teaches a better way, a healthier way, in recognizing that God is the one who bestows gifts upon all for building up the body of Christ. And for this, my dear friends, we can rejoice in our own gifts, as well as those of others, recognizing that God is the one who has first endowed the gift, right? This is what yesterday evening was all about. This tendency we have to compare our situations with others will ultimately fail. Why? Because quite simply, my friends, your situation is unlike any other situation. And therefore, it is impossible to compare because no one situation is alike. What do we say about the snowflake? (laughs) No one snowflake is alike. So you can sit there and compare two snowflakes, but you're always going to find something different. And when you are comparing your situation to another situation, hoping that it's going to get you out of your situation, that is folly. Because in the end, 
Only God can reveal to you why you are going through what you are going through. I know that in life, some of us go through things that certainly in the realm of difficult seem to be more difficult than others. When you're talking about the difference between a scabbed toe and the ravages of cancer, I get that. Go to God and allow God to help you understand why you are going through the situation that you are going through. If you think by comparing your situation with another situation is going to make you feel better somehow, don't waste your time. What we have to understand is that each and every one of us have a very particular vocation that God has called us to. And God will use anything and everything at his disposal to draw us closer to him. God isn't up there comparing his sons and daughters. He is just simply loving his children. And he will do whatever it takes to bring you to him. That's the bottom line. As I've said in the past, time and time again, we have to understand, well, my friends, that God understands. If you have said before, well, no one understands, I get that. I get that. Lord knows I've said that on more than one occasion. But by the grace of God, I have come to understand one simple truth, that Jesus does understand. That is to say, there isn't anything here on earth that Jesus already hasn't passed through. It's not like we are suffering here on this earth more than the God-man suffered, right? No, we have to understand that Salvation is on the line. And if anything, we have the atrocity of the cross to be reminded that he understands whatever we are going through. And so we have to be very, very careful about how we talk as it relates to our relationship with Christ. That is why on more than one occasion, I have put such an emphasis on the fear of God because the fear of God is that awe-like reverence of God that instills in us, imbues within us a sense of what I should or shouldn't say, right? Because of your awe-like reverence for God. He understands, my friends. He understands. And I think it would be right for us to pray for the grace that we might come to understand what he wants to show us. Huh? This would be very, very important. Now, all that being said, let us turn our attention to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, we have what some have called Paul versus the super apostles. We have been talking about these intruding missionaries, these uh, men who boast about what they have done. We are made to reflect into this kind of juxtaposition between who St. Paul is and who the perceived super apostle is, because as we have been talking about, these are not one and the same thing, right? If you were to take a close look at the, at the 12 apostles, you can quickly come to appreciate <laughs> right, that Jesus was picking from the bottom of the bucket, right? What did I say yesterday? God is not called the qualified, but he qualifies the call. I don't know if you have heard me speak to this uh, staff aptitude test before. It's been quite some time since I've last talked about this. I have this fun letter here. It's 
To Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafter's Shop, Nazareth. From Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. The subject of this letter is titled Staff Aptitude Test. The date is roughly May 22nd, 30 AD, and I will read the letter as follows. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also have arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational consultant. It is of the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and gives in to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine team morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We highly recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. (laughs) So there you have it, my friends. This is why we need to be reminded from time to time that God will call who he chooses to call. And it is about our submission to that call, our submitting ourselves to the master teacher, submitting ourselves to God's larger providential plan, that in the end, we may in fact play our part, not comparing our situations to others, but entering into our own situation, then indeed we might come to discover why God has allowed certain things to happen in our lives. And at the same time, as we do that, enter deeper into the mystery of our vocation, mindful that Whatever your vocation is, whatever God has called you to, He has called you and no one else. And it is high time we enter into that calling. Why? Because the time is now, right? The great gift that God has given to us is what but the present moment. So the apostles were called, right? And they embraced that call. And there have been those who have followed those apostles, like that of St. Paul. And he himself, like the previous 12, is reminding these intruding missionaries that you have to go deeper. God's plan is bigger. All right. All that being said, let us now engage chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. If only you would put up with a little foolishness from me, please put up with me. 
For I am jealous of you with the jealousy of God, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts may be corrupted from a sincere and pure commitment to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it well enough. For I think that I am not in any way inferior to these super apostles, even if I am untrained in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. In every way we have made this plan to you in all things. All right, off the top, I want to speak to this marital imagery that St. Paul provides for us, and more specifically, God's covenant love for his people. Paul's use of marriage imagery in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, has its roots in the writings of the prophets, in particular, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and the prophet Hosea. These four prophets portrayed God's special covenantal union with his chosen people as what? A marriage. A marriage, right? We see that through Isaiah, God proclaimed to Israel what? As a young man marries a virgin. Or how about your builder shall marry you? And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. Brothers and sisters, this image of marriage served to convey what? But God's intimacy with and fidelity to who but Israel, as well as to remind his people that they belonged exclusively to him. When Israel abandoned God's way and turned to serve the idols of other nations, the prophets accused them of what but spiritual adultery. Nevertheless, the prophets also made clear that God stood ready to receive his people back if they recommitted themselves to him. This is why Jesus presented himself as the what in, in Mark chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, but the bridegroom. Brothers and sisters, all Christians are to be faithful to their betrothal to Christ as they await the what? Wedding feast that will be celebrated at his return in glory. In this context, how can we not think of Ephesians 5, where Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ, who has been sanctified and cleansed so that Christ, what do we read, might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, verses 23 and following. How about Revelation chapter 19, verse 7? where the New Testament reaches its climax in a song of victory. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding day of the Lamb has come and his bride, did you hear that? His bride has made herself ready. Brothers and sisters, the church is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. What is going on here? What in the world is St. Paul and all of these prophets, and for that matter, Jesus, talking about? But our marital union with Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. 
and how do we enter into this marital union? We do it mystically in the spirit, yes, but above all else, sacramentally in the Eucharist, because it is in the Eucharist where God enters into a bridal union with our very souls. Yes, we consume Jesus in the Eucharist, but you've heard me say it before, it is also about Christ consuming us. What are those words that come to us from Jesus on the cross? Earlier we were talking about the cross and how where there's tragedy, there's unity. Well, brothers and sisters, profound unity because he says, it is finished. In the Latin, consumatum est. In other words, it is consummated. It is consummated. He has poured himself out sacramentally for us. Now it is time for us to receive him. Then indeed, he might consume us and we might become one. This is what happens in the Eucharist. This is what Jesus tells us we must do in John 6. If you do not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life within you. If you do eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, my body, blood, soul, and divinity is streaming through your veins. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't get any more personal in the Eucharist. And this is quintessential for us to understand as biblical theologians, as people who are studying sacred scripture. There's no way around it, really. When you read John chapter 6, you spend time with what Jesus says in the upper room. It is about the Eucharist. And it is quintessential for us to understand this because it is in the Eucharist that we enter into this profound union with God. Yes, we have this union mystically in the Spirit, for sure, but something much more is going on here in the Eucharist. And as Christians and as Catholics, we praise God for this, for sure. All right, I don't have a whole lot of time left, but I did want to work through a few more of these verses. Now, it is because St. Paul's fatherly concern for the Christians that St. Paul expresses his fear in verse 3 that the intruding missionaries are leading them away from their commitment to Jesus. And so this is why he says what he says here. Just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so Paul is afraid that the community's thoughts may be corrupted from a sincere and pure commitment to Christ. Here you have that all-important word purity, a word that very much in the Greek speaks to that single-mindedness, that single-heartedness for God. Don't let all of these things you can't control preoccupy you. Don't fill your thoughts with impure things. Focus on the purity of Christ, and He will restore you, restore you to the origins of why you were created to give glory to Him. Now, he alludes here to the story told in Genesis 3, where Eve succumbed to the wiles of the serpent and ate the fruit of the tree from which she and Adam had forbidden to eat, because ultimately you have corruption going on, right? You have an intrusion going on. These missionaries were intruding on the truth of Christ. 
What did God say to Adam in Genesis chapter 2? Till and keep the garden, which when you translate, guard the sanctuary, right? Avoid those cunning moves of Satan. You see what St. Paul is doing there? Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. If you have any questions, comments, observations about anything that we have talked about, just not this evening, but, but really anything that might be on your heart. It can be something related to First and Second Corinthians or anything that uh, the Catholic Church teaches. Please, whatever is on your heart, don't hesitate to send that message on its way. You can go to my email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.